Ruth chapter 4. Well, I recognize some of you might have missed the past couple weeks, so let me try to sum up what's happened in Ruth up until this point with a little bit of a story. At the end of Ruth chapter 3, we find Ruth, and she snuck out onto the threshing floor. I want you to imagine that it's past midnight, the stars are out, it's dark, the, the wind is wisping over the fields. Ruth is laying on the ground, and the ground is cold, it's hard. She's laying there at the feet of Boaz, and all she can hear is the wind and the snoring of the men who are sleeping all around her, and she's trying to go to sleep. Like, but how can you sleep after everything that's happened? How can you sleep after who knows what the future holds for her? And so why don't you imagine her as she's, as she's laying there at Boaz's feet, and she's probably a little cold, and she just thinks through what happened only a few hours before. How she snuck out there to this threshing floor around midnight, uncovered his feet, woke Boaz up as he looked at her and was shocked to see a woman there as he smelled her perfumes, her oils, and asked who she was. And, and, and just imagine that she would think, I can't believe I had the courage to ask if he would redeem, if he would marry me. And then I can imagine as she laid there thinking, I wonder if it will actually happen or not. Boaz wanted to redeem, but actually Boaz said there's someone else that takes first place and he has the right to redeem first. I can imagine as, as Ruth laid there that night and just thought through the, the hope she had for this possible redemption, she, she might have thought to herself, how did I get here? Like I grew up in Moab. I grew up worshiping Chamash. I, I, I can imagine she still remembered the screams of those babies as they were sacrificed alive. As, as people chanted and worshiped their false idols as the men would go out to their threshing floors with their prostitutes and worship their idols. And I can imagine she would think back to Malon, this Jewish man that showed up in her town one day and she married. And how from her, his family, she heard of Yahweh, this one true God. But then I can imagine as she laid there, she would have thought back to the pain, the pain of burying her husband, of burying her, her brother-in-law. Imagine her thinking back to Naomi, bawling, crying, losing her husband, and then two sons, and then those ladies all crying together. And I can imagine her remembering that pain. And as Orpah goes back to Chemosh and her gods, and, and, and Naomi seems to believe in Yahweh. She says she does, but she blames everything on Yahweh. And, but she knew in her heart there was something about Yahweh. She believed he, he is the true God. Her, her false gods didn't give her a baby. Of course, neither did Yahweh either. And, but she had decided that she was going to follow the one true God, Yahweh. Even, even though Naomi didn't seem like she was living it out, Orpah decided not to, but she went back with her. And I can imagine she laid there. She might even looked out over the fields and thought back to when Naomi and her came to Bethlehem and then she went out and she worked in those fields. How hot and tiring it was only a few weeks before that had happened. And 
And people would say to her, oh, Ruth, the Moabite. Just those cutting remarks as people expressed their disdain for someone from Moab. But yet there was one that showed her kindness. And I can imagine she would look up at, at Boaz's feet there and see him sleeping. And, well, was he sleeping? Who knows? And I can imagine she thought, but he showed kindness. He never called me Ruth the Moabite. He said, my daughter. He, 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 he thought he considered me as one of God's children, the family of, of Israel. And I can imagine that she thought to herself, I, would, I wish I could just curl up next to him and be warm. Like my mother-in-law told me to come out here and that would be the easy way to get redeemed, right? I mean, that's what the law of Moses says in Deuteronomy 22, that if something like this happens between us and I, like he has to marry me. But no, I'm committed to Yahweh. And I can imagine her heart, Lord, give me strength to lay here still and trust you and do it the right way. And that morning, Boaz stood up went to his young men there at the field and said, don't let anyone know this young woman was here tonight. We're, we're here to protect her purity, her testimony. And then he went to Ruth, gave her a bag of grain, and she took it back to Naomi. And I want you to imagine as she walks in the door, I mean, she's, she's probably skipping home, right? The sun's rising and her hopes are rising too. She's skipping home and she opens the door and there's Naomi, and Naomi didn't look like she slept all night either. She was waiting for the news. And Naomi says, who are you now, Ruth? Who are you, my daughter? And Ruth told her everything that had happened to her. That's actually what we see in Ruth chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. In fact, I want you to look down in Ruth chapter 3 and look at verse 16. As she enters into this house and sees her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law says to her, notice what the ESV says, verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she, Ruth, told her all that the man had done for her. Now, the ESV translates that as how do you fare? How, how, did, how did it go? The King James actually does the best translation of this. It says, how art thou? It's kind of archaic, but, but most commentaries recommend that actually be translated this way. In other words, the, the question really was this. How, who are you now, my daughter? Like, who are you now? You, you were Ruth the Moabite. Who are you now? Are, are you Ruth the wife of Boaz? How did it go last night? That's really the question we have here in our text and really in the book of Ruth. Who are you? Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite. She was the lowest of that society in Israel. Israelites viewed Ruth as a foreigner, an outcast, a woman who belonged to a, a cursed pagan people. The word Moab actually means of my, from my father, son from my father. The Moabite's forefather was a man named Moab who was born as a result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his own daughter. So when you said the word Moab, it was like saying, you're from an immoral family. Like we can think of some words in English that say that kind of thing, right? 
So th- this was not a kind comment when they were like, Ruth the Moabite from Moab. It was saying, hey, we know what kind of background you have. Ruth was poor. She was a widow. She had no children. And in that society, in that culture, they viewed women that were childless as worthless. Many were shamed because of it by their community. But Naomi as well, she, her husband has died. Her sons have died. She's a widow. She's poor. She owned land, but it was under the name of her dead husband, Elimelech. And in those days, the, the land remained in the name of the male head of house until it was redeemed by another male relative. So, so the land, even for Naomi, was no good. So here you have Ruth, Naomi, and the land, and it's destitute, it's barren, it's fruitless, it's hopeless. All three of them are that way. And there's no hope for them unless there is someone to redeem. The title of my sermon this morning is that there is a redeemer. And the question I want to ask here is who is the redeemer? Who is the redeemer? This week, we're going to look at two possibilities. And next week, we're actually going to find two more redeemers. So you have to come next week to find out what that one's about. Who is the redeemer? Who's the redeemer for Ruth? Who's the redeemer for Naomi? Who's the redeemer for the land? Who is your redeemer? When we use the word redeemer, what are we saying? Well, in English, redeemer means one who purchases someone's freedom. But but in Hebrew, that word for, for redeemer actually means a lot more. The Hebrew word for redeemer is gael. And it's a word that really means relative. Uh, kinsman, but it's more than just relative or kinsman. It's actually a relative who has a special job, a special duty. And the special job for this male relative is to protect and to provide for his family. So a gael, a redeemer, would protect and provide for his family. I was actually able a couple years ago to be a gael for someone. We had a relative who had an Um, was an alcoholic, and they were living in their car, and they stole someone's credit card and spent a lot of money on it, and they were in jail. And I was able to go to the courthouse and pay for that relative's bail, or actually just pay off the, the credit card, and they dropped the charges. And he was able to be free from jail because I went and paid the price. You could say I was a gael. I was, a, I was able to be a redeemer for this one. And for the Jewish people, there are a number of ways that you could be a gael, you could be a redeemer. One is if you were so poor and you had to sell yourself as a slave, a a relative could come in and he could buy you back and buy your freedom. Or like Naomi here, you might have land and you have no children to inherit it. And so a goel, a redeemer, was required to purchase that land to keep it in the family. And another way a goel, a, um, a redeemer, could function was through leveret marriage. Leveret means brother-in-law. So the idea was if you were a childless widow, a brother-in-law could step in and offer to marry you, and he would be a goel. He would be a redeemer. So you would have children with that man, and then your deceased husband's land would be owned by him until you had children. And then when those children were of age, they would get your deceased husband's name, and they would actually receive 
his land as the inheritance. And so you would, that redeemer would come in and he would redeem that land and that woman and give her children. And the last way a goel worked was through avenging. He could actually literally go out and find someone who has wronged his family. He could either take him to court and sue him or bring him to justice, even if it meant through avenging the person by murdering them or killing them, someone who murdered one of your family members. And so there's a lot of different aspects of this. You think about Abraham, he was that kind of redeemer, right? He went out and he actually rescued Lot and his possessions. And you might have seen this, and maybe in your Bible it's translated as kinsman redeemer. The idea of a kinsman redeemer, it's a relative, a kinsman and redeemer, and they kind of put it together. But it's one word, it's the idea of, of a redeemer. So here's my definition of a redeemer. Redeemer is this. A redeemer is one who rescues a loved one from ruin and graces him or her with a new identity and future. One who rescues a loved one from ruin and graces him or her with a new identity and a future. There's 84 verses in this little book of Ruth. And there's actually 21 times where we see this Hebrew word redeemer used. And in fact, on the first occurrence of this word, the whole narrative turns. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. Here we have hopelessness. We have despair, we have ruin. And then in chapter two, verse 20, everything turns when there's the hope for a redeemer. Look at verse 20, we see Naomi praise Yahweh for his covenant love because Ruth found herself in the field of Boaz. She was oblivious that he was a relative. And in verse 20, we see that Naomi says, the man is a close relative of ours. That's Boaz, one of our Goel's redeemers. He's a relative who could redeem us. With that possibility, their despair turned to hope. And then notice in chapter three, in chapter three, Naomi counsels Ruth to pursue Boaz. And as we said last week, I believe her counsel was unwise. But Ruth went forward into that field, into that threshing floor with faith in Yahweh. And so she remained pure and so did Boaz in their relationship out there. And look at verse nine, at midnight on that threshing floor, notice how they converse with each other. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant, spread your wings over your servant for you are a Gael, a redeemer. So Boaz is a redeemer. And so now there's, there's hope for her. And look at verse 12. And we're going to see this over and over used. Verse 12. And now it is true that I am a Goel. I'm a redeemer. Yet there is a Goel. There is a redeemer nearer than I remain tonight. And in the morning I will redeem. I will Goel you. Um, if, if he will re- redeem you. Not willing to redeem you. Then as the Lord lives, I will redeem. I will Gael, you lie down until this morning. So we see over and over this idea of a redeemer, a redeemer that could bring Ruth, Naomi, and their land hope. And here, Boaz wants to be the redeemer. He wanted to rescue Ruth and Naomi from ruin and give them a new identity and future. But there's a problem. 
there was someone else who, another relative who had first rights to the property and to the ability to redeem them. Now, let me ask you this question. As, as it's midnight out there and Boaz is talking to Ruth and he's smelling her perfumes and he sees her there, he thinks about the future with her. What does he want? Well, he wants to redeem her, right? He wants to marry her. What do you think he felt like doing at that moment? And then let me ask you, what did he actually do? Boaz chose to do the right thing. He chose to do the right thing even if he didn't know how it would turn out. I mean, think about that. He didn't try to manipulate the situation He didn't do maybe even the easy path of just sleeping with Ruth that night. He chose to do what was right, even if it cost him marrying Ruth. That's That's when you really know that you trust the providence of God. Remember, this book is about how God providentially works to fulfill his promises to his covenant people. God providentially works to fulfill his providence to his covenant people. And he does it, and and sometimes in ways that seem impossible, and he does it through ordinary means. And so that's what we see here in this text. It's like, wait a second, there's someone else that could redeem Ruth? And the question for Boaz is not, how can you figure out God's providence to work in your favor? Here was the question, really. Are you going to do the right thing, Boaz? And trust God for the results. Brothers and sisters, there's many times when we have opportunities to do the right thing. We don't know what the results are going to be, but we have to trust God. That he's providentially working all things according to his will to fulfill his promises for our good and for his glory. Sometimes we have a difficult decision to make where we have to do the right thing knowing that it might not turn out the way that we want. It might be that you have sinned against someone in some way and you know the right thing to do is to talk to them about it and confess that sin, but you don't know how they're going to respond. Or maybe they're going to use it against you in the future. Or maybe you need to talk to someone about their sin But again, you don't know how they're going to respond. Maybe it's speaking up about the Lord when there's an unpopular, an ungodly, I should say, an ungodly conversation taking place. Maybe it's youth, teens, and children. Maybe it's with your friends or maybe when you're at a place of employment and people are speaking about the Lord in a certain way or they're doing something that's not righteous and you either in righteous need to walk away or in righteousness, say something. It might mean giving the gospel to someone, even if you risk losing the relationship. It might be inviting a person into your, into your life. Maybe that there's someone in here, or there's people in here, and you think, maybe I should, maybe I should invite them to my house, but, but what are they going to say about my house? Maybe their house is nicer than my house, or maybe I should try to befriend that person, but what if they reject me? In other words, it's, it's saying, I'm going to make a decision to trust God even if I don't know the results. And that's what you see here with Boaz. Boaz took a step of faith to do the right 
thing before God, even though the results might not turn out how he wanted. So Ruth, Naomi, and their land need to be redeemed. They needed a redeemer. So the question is, who will be the redeemer? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Ruth went home to Naomi, and Boaz went right to the city gate. Now, why is he going to the city gate? Well, the city gate was like the town hall. That's where the legal business was done. So if you wanted to sell some land, or you wanted to get married, or have a contract, then you went to that place. The elders were there. There are plenty of witnesses. And notice something very interesting. Boaz went to the city gate, and he sat down, which meant what? Which meant Boaz is a man of great importance in this city. He's able to sit where the elders sit in town. And then look at verse 1, continuing on. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Isn't that interesting how he just happens to come by? Notice the providence of God here. In fact, keep looking. He says, behold, the Redeemer. And I think it's interesting as you think about this. I said this last week, but in chapter 2, verse 4, we see this idea of behold or look. And remember we said last week that when we see this word, it's to draw our attention to God's providence. God's doing something here. So in chapter 2, verse 4, Boaz, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. It was, look at Ruth, God's providing a Boaz. Remember we said this last week. And then we saw this again in chapter 3, verse 8. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. And it's like, hey, Boaz, God's providing for you a, a Ruth. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, behold, wait a second, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. God just brought this by, but what's happening? Another Redeemer? What's God doing here? I think sometimes as you read through the story, I think the idea of this story is you read through it and you're going, wait a second. Is it possible that Boaz might not be able to redeem her? Maybe, maybe he won't be able to marry her. You know, that's the tricky part about God's providence here. I think God wants us to recognize that God is doing something here, even if it seems like something else might be happening. Why is he doing that? He wants us to trust him. And so look, God is working. Continuing on in verse number one. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So all these people are sitting down. And everyone, the crowd is gathering around. Verse three, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, whom, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So Naomi is an impoverished widow. Her land is available to a relative who wants to redeem her and take the land as well. So verse four, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know for there is uh, no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, no, that's okay. You can have it. What did he say? I will redeem it. And this is the part of the story where all the children go, no, Boaz is supposed to be the redeemer. What's going on here? Well, 
Boaz was revealing the true intentions of this potential redeemer. Boaz was offering to this relative the opportunity to redeem Naomi, and with that would come the land. Now think about it. Naomi is this old barren woman. So this man began to calculate this investment. If he redeemed Naomi in this land, that's a net gain. That's a gain for him, right? That's profit. He gets more land. And she's an old hag, right? She's not going to have any children. There's not going to be some baby that's going to come along and take the inheritance away from him. And I mean, she's older. And so he's got to feed her. So that's kind of a loss. But I mean, how long is she really going to live, right? So he gets the land and has to take care of an old woman, but he gets the profit from this. And so why did this man want to redeem Naomi? Well, it was for the money. It was for personal gain. This land would make him more important in the town. It would make him more wealthy and his name would become greater. Which reminds me, what is this guy's name anyways? Look at verse one. What is his name there? Well, Boaz calls him friend. And that's not really a great translation. His Hebrew name is actually a Hebrew idiom, which rhymes. And it really means the nameless one, the man without a name. It's kind of like when we say, if you ever said this, like Joe Schmo. That's not really somebody's name. You know, you're like, and what, and that, yeah, that Joe Schmo the other day said this. It, it's, it's saying, I don't remember his name, so I'm just going to give him a, a no name, right? Or when we were growing up, we used to call people, what's his face or what's her face? And if you couldn't remember someone's name, you say, and, and what's her face said this, right? And the idea is you don't know their name, so you're going to give, put something in its place. And, and so that's what he's doing here. It's, it's, it rhymes and he's saying, this is, this is Joe Schmo. This is, so we're going to call him, we're going to call him. Mr. No Name, right? Because that's what he's saying here. The author is actually making a point. It could be and probably likely that Boaz actually said his name. But here the author puts in here Joe Schmo, a Mr. No Name, so that we would recognize something. Mr. No Name wanted to redeem, to make his name greater, to increase his wealth. Look at verse five. So then Boaz said, here to Mr. No Name, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer was shocked by this. Didn't consider that in his investment strategy. That wasn't in the portfolio. Then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. How kind of him. For I cannot redeem it. Once Ruth's name came up, and notice this is the first time that Boaz has actually used this title for Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. He's never called her that until this point right here. And he does it on purpose. He wants, to, he wants this guy to know, Mr. No Name to know, here is Ruth. She is a Moabite. And so this man then began to calculate wasn't going to be profitable for him anymore. I mean, if he married Ruth, he would stain his name by marrying a woman from Moab. If he married Ruth and she had a son, that son would eventually get the land back and some of his inheritance too. This wasn't working out well for him. So Mr. No Name didn't want to sacrifice 
his possessions for the good of Ruth or Naomi or their deceased spouses. He didn't want to hurt his own name and his own bank account. And here's the irony of all this. Mr. No Name was so concerned about losing his wealth and keeping his name, but in the end, he lost it all. Who knows his name today? Nobody, because he's Mr. No Name. Where are his possessions today? They're all gone, and nobody even cares. And herein is a lesson for us all. You can live this life to try to earn a name for yourself and heap up earthly possessions, but there will be a day when you take your last breath and you'll lose it all. And yes, your name might be remembered for a couple of years, but eventually you'll be a Mr. No Name. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. All the things that you have in your possession right now, that bank account, that house, those material possessions you hope to have someday, all of those things will someday turn to dust. Even your own name will be forgotten. I had the men's prayer time yesterday, and I asked the men in there, what's the name of your great-grandmother? Let me ask you that question. What's the name of your great-grandmother? Now, just do this. If you can remember it in your head, raise your hand so I can see it, okay? Your name of your great-grandmother. You know the name of your great-grandmother? Okay, put your hands down. Okay, what's the name of your great-grandfather? You think you know? Put your hand up. Ooh, there's a couple people in there. Okay, pretty good. You might remember her name. Do you know what her worries were? Do you know what her loves were? How about her successes? How about her failures? Maybe you have her diary or something like that you can read. But the point is that there will be a day that you will forget, your name will be forgotten by those on earth. You will be a Mr. or Mrs. No Name. Unless, unless, unless you trust in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. This is the amazing thing. If you put your faith in the name above all names, Revelation 3, 5 says, he says, I will confess your name before my father and his angels. Your name will be forever, will forever remain in the Lamb's book of life. That's a name that lasts. And so that's why the scripture says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Be also. Show me where you put your money, what you do with your money, and I'll show you what you love. Now, I want you to think about this because it wasn't the money or the name that were the problems, Right? I mean, Boaz, we remember his name today, actually did increase Boaz's wealth. So the money and the name weren't the problems. What was the problem? Well, Boaz, he didn't do what he did for the love of that money or for the sake of his own name. His name, his possessions were gifts from God. What was Boaz most concerned with? 
I want to do what's right before God. It wasn't like this Mr. No Name where it's like, well, I want to do what's going to increase my bank account or I want to do what's going to increase my name. He says, I want to do what God wants me to do and I'm going to trust God with the results. And you know what's amazing? This doesn't always happen, but God blessed him with a name that we remember today. God blessed him in that way. You know what's interesting? Life under God's providence is ironic like that. If you live for the bigger this or that or to have more of this or that, You will lose it all at your last breath. But if you trust God, if you love him, if you seek things which are above, you invest your life in eternal things, those things will outlast you and everyone else. If you try to make a name for yourself, you're going to go down as a Mr. No Name, at least someday, right? But if you surrender your life, To Jesus Christ, the name above all names, he writes your name in the Lamb's book of life. If you try to save yourself, if you try to be good enough for God, if you try to do enough good works to earn your forgiveness, if you try to earn your own salvation through religion or self-effort, you'll lose your life. You'll never be good enough. You'll remain damned forever because of your sin. But if you humble yourself, if you stop trying to be your own savior, if you give up your life for the sake of Christ and trust in him, he promises to save you. And that's why he says, for whoever would save his life, you're gonna lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? That's really the question of life. What would it profit you if you gain everything you want in this world, but you still die and go to hell? What shall a man give in return for his own soul? And friend, without Christ in here, I want to ask you that question. What's more valuable? Sometimes pride can hold us back from crying out to God in faith and trusting in him. I can remember as a 15-year-old boy, that was, that was a very difficult thing in my life. I knew I needed to be saved, but I thought back to my family. I thought back to my church, and I thought, how can I tell them that I'm not a Christian? And I had to lose my reputation in order to come to Christ. And Christians, we need to live in light of these values. Are we laboring for that which will outlast us? I think of some of these Chew Trackers workers that come on Thursday nights, and I think of some of the men and women who are working right now and investing in souls. I mean, those are the the laboring, that's that's the work that's going to outlast this life. Are, Are we investing our life and our resources in eternal things? I think about parents, parents, are we valuing that which lasts forever? We can be so concerned about about toys and possessions and talents and all those things of this earth. And again, I'm not saying those things aren't valuable at all, but are we really valuing the eternal souls of our children? And so Boaz did what was right before God. He was a willing redeemer. Mr. No Name was a worthless redeemer. Mr. No Name was worthless because 
He was not willing to rescue. He did not have sacrificial love. He was only concerned about himself. So who is the willing redeemer? Well, it's Boaz. Look at verse seven. And now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And so what's with the giving of the sandal? Well, it was a way for them to seal a contract. It was like signing on the dotted line. Instead, they gave a sandal. It's a weird cultural custom. We have some weird customs too, okay? So let's not be too hard on them. Boaz agreed to be a redeemer. Again, he agreed to be someone who would rescue Ruth and Naomi and that land from ruin and grace them with a new identity and a new future. And so notice what that meant for Ruth. Look at verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. So all the land in Elimelech's name and Malon and Chilion's name was now Boaz's land. Verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. So now she is his wife. And what was the reason that he said he was marrying her? Because I looked into her dark brown eyes and felt some fuzzy thing in my stomach. No. It says, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. He did this because of hesed love, covenant love. And Boaz said he was marrying Ruth. So Malon, and really with that, her, his father, Elimelech's name, could continue through any offspring that he had with Ruth. So in essence, Boaz was declaring that he was marrying Ruth so that they could have a baby boy, and that baby boy would grow up, keep the name of Malon, and Elimelech, and all the inheritance, and also get some of his inheritance as well. So this was truly a sacrificial act of Boaz. I mean, he was wealthy. He didn't need more land. And even so, that, wouldn't, that land wouldn't go to him in the end anyways. Those, those boys would grow up, and they would inherit the land. Even more than that, he was marrying a Moabite. I mean, here's this prominent man sitting at the gate Marrying a Moabite. In fact, I said that he only used that title for her twice. The second time is here in verse number 10. And I think what he's doing here in verse 10 is he's giving a contrast. Here is Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon. So she, she was married to Malon at one time. She was a widow. She was Ruth, the Moabite. But now what is she? I have bought to be my wife. She's now Ruth, my wife. So Boaz was not redeeming Ruth for his own name or his own wealth. This was a sacrificial act of love. And we can't help but pause here and notice the parallels between Christ and Boaz. 
Boaz is a picture of our Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. Just think about it. Boaz lay aside his honor and riches to humble himself so he could rescue Ruth from ruin. Boaz acted out of sacrificial covenant love. Boaz rescued someone outside of his family to bring him into his covenant family. And isn't this a wonderful picture of Christ? He is our Redeemer. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Redeemer who took on flesh. He became like one of us. Jesus is the Redeemer who left the honor and riches of glory. Jesus is the Redeemer who paid the price for our sins with his own blood. Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's the Redeemer who purchased our redemption with his own blood. Jesus willingly invited the curse of death upon himself to redeem us. I mean, remember, he was, he was beaten. Then he had to drag his cross through the streets. He permitted those vile soldiers to pierce him to that cross. And he hung there. He hung there enduring not just the physical pain, but the spiritual pain as his father poured out wrath upon Jesus, the righteous son for us, the unrighteous. As he hung there on that cross, he heard the taunts of those who said he couldn't redeem, the soldiers, the Pharisees, even those on the cross who said, save yourself, redeem yourself. You can't even do that. He cried in anguish as his father poured out his wrath for our sins. And as his blood drained out of his body, he was purchasing our freedom from sin and death. And then he finally cried out, it is finished. The price has been paid, right? Redemption has won. It was like he, it was like he took off his shoe and said, here you go, Father, I paid the price for their freedom. He died, was buried, and he rose again. And now Jesus is our Redeemer who stands at the Father's right hand. And Jesus knows each one of our hearts. If you're in here without Christ, he knows. He knows that you are a sinner. He knows your past. He knows your thoughts. He knows you deserve to be separated from him forever, but he wants to save you. In fact, Romans 10, 12 through 13 is a wonderful picture as well of what happened in Ruth. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. Isn't it interesting how a Greek, a Gentile, Ruth came into the family of God? And that happens in Christ for us, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who do what? Who call upon him. How can you be in the family of God? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is the redeemer who wants to save. And so what do you have to do? Just try harder, right? No. Call on him and say, I can't save myself. And he promises to save you. I mean, can you imagine? This didn't happen. This is not in the Bible. Can you imagine if Boaz were to go back to Ruth and be like, hey, Ruth, it worked. I can redeem you. This is great. I, I paid the price already. And, Ru and Ruth goes, oh, Boaz, Boaz, 
I'm not worthy. I think probably what I should do is probably serve in your fields for a couple years. And after that, then I'll marry you. No, 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 no. We're, we're going to do this. Like I already paid the price. And no, no, no. I, I don't think, I don't think so. I think I actually, I think I actually need to, to be your servant for a couple more years. We would say that's ridiculous, right? And that didn't happen, right? And why didn't that happen? Because that's ridiculous. She, he already had paid the price and he had opened up the door so she could live with him and covenant with him. And how much more ridiculous is it when people think that they can do that with Jesus Christ? Well, he's, yeah, like he died on the cross. He's a redeemer, but man, I got, I got to do something to be, so God will like me, you know? I got, I, got to, I got to be good enough for God in order for him to have favor upon me. And they think that way. That's ridiculous. He's paid the price. He is the redeemer. And all you need to do is call upon him. And if you're without Christ in here, Christ's call to you is to confess your sin. You are a sinner. And to call upon him as the savior. And Christians, for us in here, we are trusting him. We need to continue to think this way. That it's not that like he saves us and now I gotta, now I gotta earn his favor again. I, I keep remembering that he is still the redeemer and he have, has his covenant love upon me. He's a redeemer who has rescued me from ruin and he graces me with a new identity and a new future. And look back with me at verse number five. So I want you to notice something. Verse five, Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will require Ruth the Moabite. So there he goes. The first time he calls her Ruth the Moabite. Over and over, 13 times in the book of Ruth, she's called Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth from Moab. Then verse 10 is the last time that we see that. He says, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. No longer is she Ruth the Moabite. Now she's Ruth, my wife. In fact, look at verse 11. You can see this. Then all the people, so this is the first time all the people recognize that Ruth is a member of Yahweh's covenant family. All the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We'll talk about them next week. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And then observe verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Notice it's Boaz took Ruth. It's not Boaz took Ruth the Moabite. It's his wife now. Her identity, her future has forever changed. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. The reason the book of Ruth is such a beloved book is because it's such a wonderful picture of the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Boaz was a sinner too, so let's not try to make him out to be this perfect guy. 
He was a sinner. He was in need of redemption as well. But the story of Boaz and Ruth is just a wonderful picture of how Christ has loved his church. We, like Ruth, are cursed because of our sin. We're destitute. We're ruined. We have no hope without a redeemer. Jesus is like Boaz. He is the redeemer who offers to rescue those who turn to him in faith. And for the person who trusts in Jesus Christ, he gives us, he graces us with a new identity and a new future. Twice in the book of Ruth, she's asked, who are you, Boaz? And then Naomi, who are you now, Ruth? Naomi says, what's her answer here now? Who is she now? Ruth, blessed of God, married to Boaz. Who are you? Christian, who are you? Church, who are you? You are a child of God. If you're in Christ, you're a holy child of God. Listen to this. You are not who the world says you are. You are not who who Satan accuses you to be. You are not even what you feel. feel. If you are in Christ, you are who Christ has redeemed you to be. And that's a blessing right there. How many Christians are are tempted throughout our week and throughout our day to think things like, I'm so stupid, or I look at my past, I can't believe that was my past, or I can't believe I did that, or I'm so confused in my present, or I have no hope for the future, I'm ruined. But not if you're a child of God. That's not how God views you. Let's end with this passage. Ephesians 1 says this, in love, in love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our brother who rescues us as the redeemer. He rescues us from ruin according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I mean, look at that right there. Look at those those verses right there. Who are you now, Christian? You're blessed. You have God's grace. You are forgiven. You are loved. In fact, he ends this text of scripture with verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. You have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. Who are you now? If you're without Christ, if you're you're fighting the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, and you say, I want to live my life for myself, let me call you to come to Christ today to turn to him in faith and and ask yourself the question, what will I give up for my own soul? Am I willing to live this life for myself and go to hell or I really want to turn to Christ? I encourage you to turn to the Lord who's the redeemer. The 1970s, a lady named Melody Green was a regular... um, was regularly getting high in Los Angeles. She was addicted to drugs. Her life was miserable. She was living a really painful, painful life. 
1972, she met her husband named Keith, and they joined together in their sin and their addiction. She grew up Jewish. She tried Buddhism. Now she was doing drugs in the 1970s, was doing drugs. Nothing seemed to fulfill her. Then in 1975, they attended a Bible study, and they heard about Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. And let me tell you, they knew they needed someone to rescue them. And so they turned to Christ, and they called upon him to save them, and God changed their life. He changed their life. They got free from their drugs, but even even more than that, they had a peace and a hope for heaven. They had the life, they had eternal life in Christ. And so as a result of that, she wrote a song, and it's called, There is a Redeemer. You know that song, There is a Redeemer? There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. That was really a testimony of what Christ had done for her. Then in 1982, her husband and her two children tragically died. Of course, that left her reeling, sad, and confused. And then she began to meditate on what it means that Christ was their Redeemer and her Redeemer. And right before he died, he actually added a third verse to this song. And it goes like this. When I stand in glory, I will see his face. There I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Trusting in Jesus Christ as your redemption, as your redeemer changes your perspective. It changes your life. I want to do this as we conclude here. I want to sing this together. We're just going to sing it a cappella. If you can remember this song, sing with us. If you don't know it, you can pick it up with us. There is a redeemer. Let's sing it. There is a redeemer.
come before you trusting that you have sent your son to be the redeemer. And we believe this Lord right here, that there will be a day when we will stand with you in glory because Christ has forgiven us. I think about Job's hope that though he went through sorrow and difficulty, he believed that he had a redeemer and it was you, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray for that person in here who is just wrestling and fighting and saying no to you and saying, I want to live my life for myself, Lord. I pray that they will count the cost of that, count the cost of coming to Christ. And Lord, may they turn to you this morning. I pray, Lord, they'll humble themselves under your almighty hand and trust in your good news, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.